Good morning. In today's headlines, the second GOP presidential debate is tonight. What can we expect and what are some things to look out for? We get a preview from a former campaign advisor. The House panel investigating President Biden and his son make some stark revelations involving $260,000 sent from Beijing to the Biden family's home address. A New York state judge rules former President Trump and the Trump Organization are liable for fraud. And we have the story and Trump's response. A New York judge orders the closure of a controversial Staten Island shelter for illegal immigrants. NTD talks with a community organizer about the case. Dealing with loss is something a lot of people may be all too familiar with. We speak with a rabbi to learn more about what you can do. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, September 27th. Got a lot of news to cover, and I'm really looking forward to our talks today about the debate and also the NYC migrant crisis. Oh, yeah, right. Stay tuned for that for sure. And we're diving right in, though, now. The House panel digging for evidence of President Biden's alleged involvement in his son's business dealings may have struck gold. The House Oversight Committee says Hunter Biden's subpoenaed bank records show the first son received money from China at his father Joe Biden's Delaware address during the run-up to the 2020 election. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the committee's findings. The House Oversight Committee quietly subpoenaed a bank for Hunter Biden's records on Monday and discovered two wire transfers from Chinese nationals to the younger Biden in 2019. The panel revealed Tuesday the transfers listed President Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home as the beneficiary address during his 2020 campaign. The wire transfers worth a combined total of $260,000 were made in July and August 2019 from Hunter Biden's business partners in Beijing. A $250,000 transfer came from Jonathan Lee, CEO of Beijing-backed investment fund BHR. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the two transfers are the first examples the panel has found of the first son receiving money directly and not through a shell company. Comer said in a statement that then-Vice President Biden spoke on the phone and had coffee with Lee in Beijing and wrote a college letter of recommendation for his children, citing testimony from Devin Archer, a former business associate of the president's son. Comer says it was an abuse of public office for financial gain and a threat to national security, and that the three-committee panel investigating President Biden and the first son will continue to follow the evidence and money to provide transparency and accountability. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy commented on the revelation, saying bank records don't lie. Vice President Joe Biden took his son to China where he met this individual that they were doing business with. He even wrote letters of recommendation, Joe Biden did, for the children. So all this talk of what Joe Biden has said has not been true to the American public. President Biden has repeatedly denied that he discussed business matters with his son and declined to comment on the investigation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. An FBI agent recently backed up accounts by IRS whistleblowers of two Biden-appointed federal prosecutors declining attempts to bring charges against the president's son. The agent, whose name is being withheld, told members of Congress in a closed-door interview that she knows the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, and U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, Miguel Estrada, rejected attempts by another federal prosecutor to bring charges. She also said she didn't think the years-long investigation had become politicized by investigating agents. 
We will have more analysis with the VP of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government soon, so don't go anywhere. Yeah, but first, today is the second GOP primary debate. Let's see what we can expect and some important things to look out for. We're bringing in Bart Marcois, a former presidential campaign policy advisor and a former international affairs official at the Energy Department. Good morning, Bart. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So we saw the first debate, a little bit of an exchange there between Haley and Ramaswamy on Ukraine aid, kind of showing a GOP divide over the issue. What can we expect from today's, today's debate? What I'll be looking for tonight is to see which of these candidates excels in defending the American people, defending American families. We're approaching, we are in the midst of a time where we're swamped by, I, I can only characterize it by evil. They are, and we need a champion who will go in there and fight. And we need to see which of these will stand up and be a champion, which will advocate for cutting government spending down to the bone wiping out entire federal bureaucracies. They have to advocate big ideas, not just tinker around the edges of what the Democrats and the leftists have built. Cutting down on spending, it seems like that would rally up their base a little bit there. So what should Americans be looking out for? They should look for somebody to talk about energy independence, complete energy independence, as we had when President Trump was in office. We should look for them to say, Parents need to have control over their children's education. They need to say it's time to stop sending federal subsidies to schools, to public schools, end the public school monopoly. Either send the subsidies to the control of the parents and let them pull their children out of the Baltimore public school district where there are zero students that are proficient in math for example, and put that money toward a local school, a, a charter school. The federal government spends ten to $15,000 a year per student and gives it all to the public school monopoly. These are the issues that parents will be looking for and that American voters will be looking for. Right, parents are a big topic here. And you mentioned energy at the first debate. Pence said that the Trump administration unleashed American energy. They had a net energy export at the time. And Ramaswamy said drill, frack, burn coal, and unleash nuclear. So who do you think's in the lead here? Oh, I think they're both right. If you want to talk about the lead, you have to look at, at each of the seven candidates in a separate category. The Pence and Christie, I think, are going to fade. They're going to continue to fade. They're, they're basing their campaign on their reason for running on fighting the man that is climbing in the polls and that nearly all Republicans support for the uh, for the primary. You can't you can't climb while while your only reason for being there is to fight the guy who's winning. Uh, DeSantis is in his own lane. He has people keep saying he's failed to catch fire. But he's also not fading. His support is firm, and it will continue to stay firm. And if anything should happen to President Trump, heaven forbid, DeSantis is still the one that most voters will coalesce around. Uh, the, the three to keep an eye on are Nikki Haley, um, uh, Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Those are the three that are really generating excitement among Republican voters of all stripes, from moderates to conservatives, 
And it's interesting to note that all three are non-traditional in more ways than one. Each one of them has several factors in their demographic background that are non-traditional. Right, yeah, and some have said that DeSantis is the runner-up here, and China wasn't really talked much about during that first debate, so we'll see if they pick that up. Bart Marquois, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. President Biden breaking convention by becoming the first sitting president to join a picket line. That does both Biden and Trump vie for blue-collar support, though with different strategies. Entity's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Standing shoulder to shoulder with members of the United Auto Workers, and President Biden on Tuesday told them they deserve higher pay and should stick with their strikes. Stick with it. You deserve the significant raise you need and other the White House calls Biden's Michigan trip historic as he was the first U.S. president to join a picket line in modern times. But Biden spent only about 12 minutes on the site and spoke for only 87 seconds. Thus is Biden's facing criticism from breaking from the long-standing tradition of U.S. presidents taking a hands-off approach to labor disputes. The White House walking a thin line. This is for the parties to negotiate. We're not going to go, we're not going to speak to what's being put at the table. Biden, however, did say yes when asked if he supports workers' demand for a 40% pay raise. Meanwhile, former President Trump is also coming to Michigan on Wednesday to talk to striking auto workers. But instead of joining them to ask for higher pay, Trump's expected to talk to them about how to keep their jobs. UAW President Sean Fain thanked President Biden for joining them on Tuesday. But the union is still withholding their endorsement of President Biden, citing concerns over job loss due to President Biden's push for EVs. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. The Hollywood writers' strike is over. Leaders of the Screenwriters' Union declared an end to the nearly five-month work stoppage yesterday. Entity's Cost Jimenez has more on the deal and what's next in store for actors. Leaders of the WGA reached the agreement with studios on Sunday, leaving writers free to work from Wednesday. According to an email by the WGA, the contracts will still have to be ratified by the writers but lifting the strike will allow them to work during that process. Union members will give their final vote on the new contract between October 2nd and October 9th. It's a deal union leaders called exceptional. The three-year agreement includes significant wins in the main areas writers have fought for, including compensation, employment length, size of staffs and control of artificial intelligence. Late-night talk shows are likely the first shows that will resume. The actors' union, SAG-AFTRA, however, remains on strike. But despite no agreement having yet been reached, many actors remain optimistic. I think it was, it was relief. It was exciting to hear that the WGA got their deal, their tentative deal and everything that they wanted. I'm really happy for them. And we got next. Now let's pay the actors. But I'm feeling really good about the tentative deal the WGA has right now with the AMPTP. For a hot second, I really thought that this was going to go on until next year. And knowing that at least one of us has gotten a good deal uh, gives a lot of hope that we will also get a good deal as well. Many writers joined the actors' strike to show solidarity. 
fight's not over, you know. Our uh, SAG after brothers and sisters showed us a lot of love and support early on, and I'm here to do the same, you know. Rising tide lifts all ships. Striking actors also voted to authorize union leaders to potentially expand their walkouts to include the lucrative video game market. A move that could put new pressure on Hollywood studios to make a deal with the performers who provide voices and stunts for games. Cost MNS, NTD News. Still to come, Hunter Biden says in a lawsuit that Rudy Giuliani illegally hacked his data, but he doesn't admit that the data came from his laptop. We dig into the lawsuit to learn more. And House Republicans plan to bring a continuing resolution to the floor this week to keep the government open, and the Senate advances a stopgap bill destined for amendment. A New York judge ruled against former President Trump in the civil lawsuit filed by AG Letitia James. Hear Trump's response after the break. Welcome back. Hunter Biden says Rudy Giuliani totally annihilated his digital privacy. This comes in a lawsuit he filed yesterday in the California federal court. Entity's Arlene Richards has a story. Is it fraudulent to publish someone's personal computer data? Hunter Biden says it is. That's why he's suing Rudy Giuliani and others. He states in a lawsuit filed Tuesday that Giuliani and attorney Robert Costello illegally distributed his private information, information that possibly came from a laptop Biden owned. The younger Biden is not admitting to owning the laptop that was dropped off at a Delaware computer repair shop. However, he does contend that the shop owner obtained computer data that belonged to him and that it was given to Costello. Shop owner John Paul McIsaac is not named in the lawsuit, but it does claim that Costello illegally received a data drive in the mail from McIsaac, and that Costello and Giuliani repeatedly booted up the drive, they repeatedly accessed plaintiff's account to gain access to the drive, and they proceeded to tamper with, manipulate, alter, damage, and create bootable copies of plaintiff's data over a period of many months, if not years. The lawsuit states that the action of repeatedly booting up the drive violates state and federal law. For example, California prohibits using data to commit fraud. According to previous reports, the Delaware shop owner has said he made a copy of the laptop's hard drive because he feared for his life. He told Fox News last year that this is why he became fearful. Hunter was in possession of a piece of paper that said that I was allowed to go through three of his laptops and recover data from them. And I just figured it was a matter of time before the Biden fixer-upper service was going to swing by the shop, realize what I had seen, and taken care and disposed of the laptop, possibly disposed of me. McIsaac said he became nervous when Joe Biden announced his candidacy for president in 2020. Giuliani told Newsmax last August what he did with the data. And there was a big dump. I put out the big dump to the New York Post. But that was the three-week period in which I was communicating with Bob Costello and John McIsaacs. We were going back and forth, and we were doing our own due diligence to make sure that what he had was legitimate. Giuliani said the FBI had seized his iCloud account, and he didn't know what they would do with the data. The lawsuit is silent on whether or not McIsaac accessed the laptop without permission. 
and whether or not he illegally obtained the data. Its focus is on subsequent actions by Giuliani and Costello. It will be up to Biden's attorneys to prove that Giuliani and Costello manipulated the data for fraudulent purposes or illegally accessed it. And joining me now for more on this is John Malcolm. He's the vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Good morning, John. It's good to see you. Now, first, we just heard a little bit about the allegations and questions surrounding them. So what do you think? Will Hunter Biden's allegations hold up in court? Well, there are a lot of interesting questions about this. So he has been, he and his attorney, Robert Costello, have been sued for allegedly violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is both a federal statute and has a California counterpart. They essentially say that he hacked into this computer. Now, Hunter Biden has, one, not admitted that the computer is his. Second, the allegations are that Rudy Giuliani didn't hack into anything. He was sent a hard drive with a copy of what was on the computer, and he simply pulled it up and then distributed it. So there's a question about, you know, maybe the, the owner of the store hacked into the computer, but it's doubtful that Giuliani and Costello hacked into the computer. He's also being sued in California for violating a California statute. All of these actions didn't, took place outside of California. So I'm a little dubious about this lawsuit. But again, I think the purpose of this lawsuit is not to try to get any money from Rudy Giuliani, who has no money at the moment. He's not even paying his attorneys in the criminal case in which he has been charged. I think it is to try to portray Hunter Biden as a sympathetic victim here. He also says in his complaint that Rudy Giuliani has manipulated and altered the data. So I think he may also be suggesting that the data that the public has seen is somehow false or been uh, changed in some way uh, to make it seem worse than it actually is. A lot of things to unpack here. And I want to go into, you touched on um, Hunter Biden's maybe strategy to to portray him as a victim. Now, is that what you think? Well, un, un, can you speak a little more about this? Because Hunter Biden has been rather quiet about it all beforehand. So is he just changing strategies now? And what is it? Yeah, I think he, he is changing strategy. So for a long time, he was actually working with the government to try to uh, solve his problems in a way that was favorable to him. But when his sweetheart plea deal fell apart and he has now been indicted and bad stories have been coming out about him, he has now gone on offense. He has sued uh, the computer shop owner. He has sued other people connected to formerly with the Trump campaign. He has sued Giuliani. Uh, I think he is trying to deter other people from coming forward and cooperating. And he is trying to change the narrative so that the public will begin to see him not as the perpetrator of crimes, but as a victim. Hmm. Well, since we have another minute here, I want to touch on um, the findings that Hunter Biden received money from a Jonathan Lee at President Joe Biden's then home. Well, and what do you can you what do you know about this person, Jonathan Lee, and what's the concern with this person? Yeah, well, Jonathan Lee is his Chinese name is Li Zhang Cheng is the CEO of BHR Partners, which is a Chinese investment firm. Hunter Biden had at least a 10% stake 
in that firm. BHR invested a lot of money in Chinese government-backed companies that were acquiring assets overseas so they could potentially harm the national security interests of the United States. And he was being paid at a time in which Joe Biden, who was threatening to uh, recall or you know, turn back the tariffs that President Trump had put in place, uh, at a time in which Joe Biden was running for president, and indeed uh, Hunter Biden listed Joe Biden's home in uh, in Delaware as the primary as his primary residence. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your take on this all, John Malcolm. I appreciate your time this morning. Good to be with you. A New York State judge ruled yesterday that former President Trump and his Trump organization are liable for fraud. This could severely hamper his ability to do business in the state. Judge Arthur Engeron of New York State Court in Manhattan ruled Tuesday in a civil lawsuit brought by State Attorney General Letitia James. The judge found that former President Trump, his three adult children, and the Trump Organization deceived banks, insurers, and others by allegedly overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth on paperwork used in making deals and securing financing. The decision will make it easier for James to establish damages at the trial. The judge also canceled Trump's business certificates in New York. Within 10 days, Trump and other defendants must recommend three independent reviewers to manage the dissolution of the corporations, including the Trump Organization. James brought the lawsuit in September 2022. She alleged that Trump inflated his net worth by as much as $2.23 billion. Trump and the other defendants have argued that they never committed fraud. They plan to appeal the judge's decision. In a statement on Truth Social, Trump said, This widespread, radical attack against me, my family, and my supporters has now devolved to new, un-American depths at the hands of a deranged New York state judge. Earlier this month, Trump sued the judge and accused him of taking too long to narrow the case. A non-jury trial to establish damages is scheduled to start October 2nd. It could last well into December. The House and Senate seem to be on a collision course in avoiding a government shutdown on Sunday. The Senate voted yesterday to move forward with a stopgap measure to avert that possibility, putting the ball in the House's court. But with the Senate adding funding for Ukraine to its bill, it's sure to meet opposition. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dismissed the measure and vowed to amend it to target border security. He says the House will put out a separate continuing resolution this week. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the government's efforts to avoid a shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the House's continuing resolution will allow Congress more time to complete the appropriations process to avoid a government shutdown on October 1st. We will move a continuing resolution, bring a rule to the floor, to secure our border and keep government open. Why are we doing this? Because America is asking for it. McCarthy pointed to recent states of emergency over the immigration crisis declared by Democratic leaders in Massachusetts, New York, and El Paso, Texas. These are Democratic leaders that are calling out for this president to do something. We are going to give Democrats and this president the opportunity to actually do that and keep this government open and hopefully the Senate will be able to start moving some appropriation bills. The Senate's bipartisan stopgap bill unveiled Tuesday includes over $6 billion for Ukraine and $6 billion for natural disasters, a sure sticking point for some House conservatives. This shows we can work together, even with our differences, for the betterment of the country. I hope the House follows suit. With only four days left before government funding runs out, the path to avoid a shutdown remains unclear. The Senate bill reauthorizes the FAA through fiscal year 2028 and was already passed by the House. 
the billis leadership's intended vehicle for the continuing resolution to extend government funding while 2024 budget negotiations play out. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, a New York judge rules that an illegal immigrant shelter has to close down. NTD spoke with a community organizer. And a couple of court decisions coming out of Texas over drag performances. We have the rulings. Welcome back. We're turning to the immigration crisis in New York. A Staten Island judge ruled yesterday that illegal immigrants must be removed from a former Roman Catholic school used as a shelter. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with a local community organizer about the situation on the ground. The decision by Staten Island Supreme Court Justice Wayne Ozzie followed weeks of angry protests from local residents. They are concerned about the St. John Villa Academy shelter's location in a residential neighborhood across from a girls' school. Some even erected a large fence, which they say is to protect students from the illegal immigrants. Community organizer John Matlin says the key issue is community safety. He cites the lack of vetting of those coming across the border to determine their criminal history, saying that puts people in danger. No one's bad because you're not from the U.S. That's, that's not what this is. It's we need to know everything about you to let you in. The former congressional candidate also takes issue with what he sees as a double standard. I've flown to other countries. You have to go through customs. Coming back into my own country, I have to stay online and go through customs and be questioned about why I left and what I did on vacation. So to be able to just cross a border and expect phone, shelter, transportation, uh, a stipend to live, hotel to go to, like it, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a reality. It's not a right way to think. Matlin describes the impact on residents from the St. John shelter and another shelter located at a former retirement home. All of these neighborhoods are having their streets shut down, detours put in place. You can't actually go anywhere in the neighborhood. Uh, you're just kind of stuck there. Ten protesters in Staten Island were arrested last week in front of the retirement home turned shelter for allegedly blocking a bus carrying migrants. Matlin says Staten Island has always had a back-the-blue mentality, but didn't appreciate what he saw as the heavy-handed response by police. They arrested these people, pushed them back, and it was literally a mirror image of exactly what was occurring in Canada during the trucker protests. They were basically linking arms, pushing people, and saying, move, in unison, like, like those wind-up robots that just go, move, move, move. New York City Mayor Eric Adams called the protesters' behavior an ugly display of how we deal with the crisis. Meanwhile, Adams announced last Friday a further tightening of shelter rules by limiting adult migrants to just 30 days in city-run facilities. Matland worries about the impact that rule change will have on crime in the city as a large population potentially becomes homeless with winter approaching. If I was homeless on the street in the winter, hungry and had to feed myself, AOC said it best. That would be a crime of passion right there for food. You need food. Uh, it would be a bread crime. So there's no way people aren't just going to sit on the street and let themselves die, nor should they. We're, we're setting everybody up for a disaster in New York City right now. New York City has become the epicenter of the illegal immigration crisis after the number of newly arrived migrants since spring 2022 surpassed 100,000 last month. 
A spokesperson for the mayor says New York will immediately appeal the St. John's shelter ruling. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A couple of court decisions coming out of Texas over drag performances. A federal judge is siding with West Texas A&M University after the school called off an on-campus drag show in March. U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek ruled last week that the university did not violate students' First Amendment rights by calling off the show. The university's president, Walter Wendler, explained in an email that he considers drag shows offensive to women. He said the shows stereotype women in cartoon-like extremes for the amusement of others and discriminate against womanhood. In a separate decision on Tuesday, U.S. District Judge David Hitner threw out Texas's new law banning public drag performances. He said the ban was an unconstitutional restriction on speech and that drag shows were the sort of expressive speech protected by the First Amendment. Major looting in Philadelphia. Police say multiple stores were swarmed by several large crowds of juveniles. The looting caused damage to several properties across central Philly last night at around 8 p.m. local time. These incidents were live streamed and shared on social media by an Instagram influencer. Video shows looters breaking through shutters and smashing windows. Among the stores damaged were Foot Locker and the Apple Store near 15th and Chestnut, as well as the Lululemon in Center City. Over 100 juveniles and young adults were involved. It's currently unclear how many businesses were affected. Officials say last night's looting was not related to the peaceful protests earlier in the day after charges were dismissed against the officer who shot and killed Eddie Irizarry during a traffic stop. Officials said up to 20 people have been arrested so far. Two firearms were also recovered, but it's not clear if they're connected to the looting. And we're going to move on to retail theft and security safety concerns that are pushing Target to close down stores in several major cities. The company announced yesterday nine stores in California, Washington, Oregon, and New York will be closing. The company tried different methods to solve the issue, such as more security, third-party guard services, and using theft deterrent tools. Target said they continue to face challenges operating the location successfully. The retailer said it took the decision very seriously, having tried and failed to stop theft and safeguard the customer experience and business performance. The stores will close October 21st. And we're going to bring you some of the latest headlines. North Korea plans to expel U.S. Army Private Travis King today, who illegally crossed into their territory from South Korea. State media says the investigation is complete and claims King confessed to intruding due to dissatisfaction with the U.S. Army and society. Entity could not verify King's words. The Cuban embassy says the recent attack in Washington was a terrorist act. Video showed someone lighting two Molotov cocktails and throwing them at the embassy in Washington Sunday night. Cuba's ambassador questioned how would the U.S. label such an incident. A California man was indicted for trafficking over 70,000 fentanyl pills brought from Mexico. He was allegedly transporting them to Evansville, Indiana. Undercover law enforcement arranged for the pills purchase. If convicted, the man faces a possible life sentence. The DEA says fentanyl has become the leading cause of death in the U.S. 
Police arrested a New Jersey driver using a license plate flipping device. He allegedly used it to avoid paying tolls on the George Washington Bridge. He faces a slew of charges including theft of service, possession of burglar's tools and more. He was also arrested in February for allegedly using a remote-controlled curtain to cover his license plate. And now we are heading to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some more short, short headlines, but around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. A raging fire consumed a hall packed with guests at a Christian wedding ceremony in northern Iraq, killing at least 100 people and injuring 150 others. The inferno outside Mosul was seemingly caused by fireworks. Authorities said flammable building materials also contributed to the disaster. The newlywed couple were among the victims. India's foreign minister said the government was open to looking into any specific information Canada provides on the killing of a Sikh separatist. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said last week that Ottawa had credible intelligence linking India to the murder. New Delhi denies the allegation but accuses Ottawa of harboring organized criminals. Two powerful explosions on separate days have ripped through dwellings in central Sweden, injuring at least three people. A Swedish newspaper reports the blasts were connected to a feud between criminal gangs over drugs and weapons. Gang violence is a growing problem in Sweden, with drive-by shootings and even bombings. The UK approved new oil and gas drilling at a site in the North Sea. Environmentalists say the move will hurt the country's attempt to meet its climate goals. Britain's Conservative government argues drilling in the area north of Scotland will create jobs and bolster the UK's energy security. The largest climate case ever to be heard by the European Court of Human Rights began today. Six young people from areas affected by Portugal's wildfires argue governments are failing to act fast enough on climate change. The case is filed against the 27 EU member states as well as Britain, Switzerland, Norway, Russia and Turkey. That's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you, Malcolm. You know, yeah, Sweden, that's surprising and it's serious. But although I just read, uh, I think a couple, uh, like a week ago or something, according to the US, U.S. News and World Report, it's still one of the best countries to live in in terms of safety as well. Yeah, well, I hope those people who are injured recover soon. And our hearts definitely go out to the fire victims in Iraq. Yeah. All right, and on this note, we're heading into break right now. The U.S. government and 17 states are taking Amazon to court. They accuse the e-commerce giant of abusing its power to crush competitors. Clean air, it's so important, but it's under threat by wildfires and numerous sources in urban areas. A chemistry professor tells us how to better protect the public and bring down air pollution in just a moment. Good to have you back. The Federal Trade Commission filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon yesterday, claiming the online retailer harms consumers by keeping prices artificially high. It's the latest legal action by the government aimed at breaking big tech's dominance over consumers. The suit comes after years of complaints that Amazon and other tech companies abuse their control of searches, social media and online retailing to become gatekeepers of the most lucrative parts of the Internet. 
The lawsuit is on the heels of a four-year investigation and other lawsuits filed against Google and Facebook. It was joined by 17 state attorneys general. The FTC accused Amazon specifically of degrading quality for shoppers, overcharging sellers, and preventing rivals from fairly competing against the company, among other claims. The suit also asked the court to consider forcing Amazon to sell assets to restore fair competition. Amazon said the lawsuit was wrongheaded and could hurt consumers, leading to higher prices and slower deliveries. The call to action against big tech is one of the few issues both Democrats and Republicans in Congress have agreed on. Amazon shares fell as much as 3.5% in Tuesday afternoon trading. That's right. And next, we're heading into a report on air quality across the U.S. and in New York City. The wildfires over the summer led to a surge in ER visits for people with asthma, especially in New York. Yeah, and the city council launched an investigation in the city's response to discuss ways they can inform the public better and more. And it's not just the wildfires that are a concern for New Yorkers. The city has many sources of pollutants, from burning trash to buildings building burning fuel and traffic to name a few yeah i went out to the city to investigate this speaking with yelda balkir an associate professor of chemistry and biochemistry at manhattan college take a look air quality it's a top concern because it affects all of us and now there are warnings from national resources canada that wildfire activity could persist which could spell bad air quality in the u.s throughout the fall and even into winter and now activists in new york city are criticizing mayor eric adams local law 97 rules as they could delay the law cutting air pollution from buildings we're going to learn a little bit more about how air quality is affected by nature and man and what can be done about it dr balk here it is great to speak with you alfresco oh it's good to be here thank you for inviting me how important is it to give residents an advance notice when situations like the hazy skies that we saw when canadian wildfire smoke blows in we should give enough notice to people to get prepared so we didn't have much notice in june so we can actually follow the uh, smoke issue like uh, in advance just like the hurricanes or the extreme heat and then uh, warn people in advance so they can actually get their medicines or they can get their masks ready. And then maybe small children doesn't go, don't go outside or older people. So uh, it would be very important to let people know what's coming in advance. Yes, it's very important to protect the vulnerable. And do you think that New York City's response was adequate? Uh, next time they could do better in terms of informing people early on than uh, I guess we, uh, we warn people much later than we were supposed to. A retired professor of public health tells us how he protected himself from the wildfire smoke this summer. I uh, went home and locked and just closed all the windows because it, we weren't warned. So it was unexpected and there's really nothing I could do about it until I returned home. What do you want the city to do differently next time? I think you have to set up a warning system. Uh, and uh, alert people and tell them what to do. It's not enough to say, my God, there's air pollution, but in those circumstances, what they can do to protect themselves and who should be uh, off the streets. But the threats to air quality stem from more than just natural causes. There are man-made sources as well. These fossil fuels, what are the noxious chemicals that are produced when buildings actually burn these type of fuels? 
Uh, there are primary air pollutants, that's what we call them. And one of them is the nitrogen oxide and the other one is the wax. It's like volatile organic compounds. When they mix together, they make ozone. And ozone is quite harmful to people. It contributes into the smog problem. And uh, the other one is the particulate matter, which is the tiny particles. It goes into your bloodstream and your lungs. So those small particles actually contributes to the lung issues, the lung problems and cardiovascular issues. So uh, especially in the summertime, breathing smog can be very harmful to people. What happens during this incineration process? So when the solid waste goes to the landfills, it's burned in the uh, incinerators and then it releases carbon dioxide which contributes into green greenhouse emissions. But it's not just the carbon dioxide, it also comes all those uh, different air pollutants. It's released into the air and it contributes into the air pollution problem. A man from Switzerland which boasts clean air shares his thoughts. I appreciate uh, uh, clean air and it, it takes a while getting used to. Um, I mean, compared to China, maybe Beijing, the pollution levels are a lot higher, but nevertheless, there, there's so much traffic here, it's, you can hardly get any fresh air in the city. A man from a small village in England says a lot of people work from home there. Uh, that is helping air quality. Uh, I've noticed uh, an improvement slightly when I've been in London, but again, they're, they're putting into place things like uh, the green buses that you've got here. Balkir suggests electrifying the city's bus fleet and adding solar panels to buildings to help reduce the amount of pollutants in the air. The mayor's office didn't get back to us yet about the pushback to his pollution law rules. I think that's a very important topic, and it's, I, it, it's, it has been on my mind, too, as somebody that comes from a small town in Germany. This is definitely, it takes some getting used to. Yeah, and it's a balance between having clean air and affordable energy consumption. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to head into break now. Dealing with loss is something a lot of people may be all too familiar with. We speak with a rabbi to learn more about what you can do in just a moment. It's good to have you back with us. Loss is an experience that everyone is familiar with, whether it's the loss of a job or an end to a relationship. Right, and it can be difficult to talk about and discuss, and even more difficult to resolve. So I spoke to Rabbi David Wolpe to learn more on how to deal with loss. Well, I realized that in the Jewish tradition, you have a service for people who've died, but you don't have a service for all the things that die while we're still alive. We have so many losses in life, you know, losses of dreams, losses of home, losses of friends, losses of love. And I thought it was important for us to begin to address the ways in which we meet those other losses that actually trail us throughout our lives. Right, so it's not loss of the person you love or possessions, it's really... Would you please um, tell me more about these types of losses that you just touched on? Sure. Um, the, when you say loss, you people generally think death. And surely that is, in some ways, the greatest loss. But I know people, for example, who, through flood or fire, have been dispossessed of their home. And they've lost all their possessions or people who thought they were going to marry this great love and then it didn't work out. And those kinds of things, the things that you hoped for or counted on or dreamed of, when you lose them, that also has something to do 
not only with your faith, but also with your hope in life. And you feel like, well, if I lost that, what is there still that I can count on or live for? Now, on that topic, how do you find meaning through that then? How do you turn this seemingly negative into a positive? So I found that the greatest way to do it, in my own experience, is to leave the why question aside. Because people spend a lot of time wondering, so why did he leave me? Why did God let this happen? And the truth is that some of those why questions are unanswerable or unknowable. Better is the what question. What do I do with this loss now that this has happened to me? It's not that I wanted it, and it's not that I welcomed it, but it has happened. So given that it happened, how do I turn this into something beautiful and meaningful for my life? And generally, it is to learn how to give something to others through that. So I have very often, when people have lost money, told them, go work at a soup kitchen for a week. And it changes their perspective dramatically to actually feed other people. I just want to say, I've had a lot of people come to my office over the years and say to me, why did this happen to me? But I almost never have someone come to my office and say, you know, I grew up in the richest country in the world with loving parents. Why me? And so if we turn the why question around to all the blessings we have, that also helps ignore the why question for why bad things happen, because we don't get you don't get to go through this life unscathed. Everybody gets stuff, you know. Right. It's almost training that muscle of um, focusing on the positive in life. Um, I do want to touch on one more thing, because right now there are so many things happening in this world. There are people, for instance, right now with all the natural disasters. They have lost their property, their family. What would you say to them? I would. The first thing I would say to them is that you have to give yourself some time to grieve. I mean, you don't want to say to them, oh, just get over it. Get over it. Never helped anybody get over anything. Um, you have to give some time to grieve. But also, they have the greatest treasure still, which is life. And as long as you are alive, you can make this world beautiful and meaningful. People have been in the most horrendous circumstances and managed somehow to create something beautiful. You know, uh, flowers grow in stony places, as the poet said. So I would say to them, once you've given yourself a certain amount of time to grieve, then try to figure out how to build on this so that one day it will become the story of what once happened to you and how you made it make your life better as opposed to worse. Well, I think that's a beautiful way uh, to end it here to wrap up our interview. Thank you so much, Rabbi David Wolpe. I really appreciate your time today. Sure. Thank you so much. He makes some really good points, channeling that grief into support for others by thinking of them first. Right, and I've heard this kind of principle many times now. It's not just, of course, you want to help others. It makes it, it fulfills you, but also it puts things into perspective. And it, tell, it shows you what you actually still have in your life, right? So I think that's a great, yeah, I thought that was great thinking. Yeah, and counting our blessings is always a good idea. All right, it looks like it is almost 30 seconds until 8 Eastern Time, and we're kicking off the second part of the show. Wire transfers from China worth $260,000 sent to the Biden family home in Delaware. The House panel investigating President Biden and his son make some stark revelations. 
Mayor Eric Adams grapples with tough decisions on what to do with the massive flow of illegal immigrants into New York City. We speak to an attorney to get their take. It's a debate night for GOP presidential hopefuls. They will face off in California with the pressure on as former President Trump remains firmly in first place. The Federal Trade Commission fires another salvo in an effort to break up big tech influence. We hear more from Entity Business host Don Ma. A beloved dog breed is lapping up attention in its new role helping people with special needs. We have the story. And to all of you who just joined us, good morning. We're going to start off with some big news here. The House panel digging for evidence of President Biden's alleged involvement in his son's business dealings may have struck gold. The House Oversight Committee says Hunter Biden subpoenaed bank records show the first son received money from China at his father Joe Biden's Delaware address during the run-up to the 2020 election. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the committee's findings. The House Oversight Committee quietly subpoenaed a bank for Hunter Biden's records on Monday and discovered two wire transfers from Chinese nationals to the younger Biden in 2019. The panel revealed Tuesday the transfers listed President Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home as the beneficiary address during his 2020 campaign. The wire transfers worth a combined total of $260,000 were made in July and August 2019 from Hunter Biden's business partners in Beijing. A $250,000 transfer came from Jonathan Lee, CEO of Beijing-backed investment fund BHR. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the two transfers are the first examples the panel has found of the first son receiving money directly and not through a shell company. Comer said in a statement that then-Vice President Biden spoke on the phone and had coffee with Lee in Beijing and wrote a college letter of recommendation for his children, citing testimony from Devin Archer, a former business associate of the president's son. Comer says it was an abuse of public office for financial gain and a threat to national security, and that the three-committee panel investigating President Biden and the first son will continue to follow the evidence and money to provide transparency and accountability. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy commented on the revelation, saying bank records don't lie. Vice President Joe Biden took his son to China, where he met this individual that they were doing business with. He even wrote letters of recommendation, Joe Biden did, for the children. So all this talk of what Joe Biden has said has not been true to the American public. President Biden has repeatedly denied that he discussed business matters with his son and declined to comment on the investigation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. To learn more on Hunter Biden's business dealings in China, I spoke with John Malcolm. He's the vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Yeah, well, Jonathan Lee, is, his Chinese name is Li Zhang Cheng, is the CEO of BHR Partners, which is a Chinese investment firm. Hunter Biden had at least a 10% stake in that firm. BHR invested a lot of money in Chinese government-backed companies that were acquiring assets overseas so they could potentially harm the national security interests of the United States. And he was being paid at a time in which Joe Biden, who was threatening to uh, recall or you know, turn back the tariffs that President Trump had put in place uh, at a time in which Joe Biden was running for president. And indeed, uh, Hunter Biden listed Joe Biden's home in, uh, in Delaware as, the primary, as his primary residence. 
Zooming in on New York City, which is not allowed to shelter illegal immigrants as a shuttered private school on Staten Island. A judge ordered the program to stop yesterday. Staten Island's Republican officials sued Mayor Eric Adams' administration last month. They say Adams is violating zoning laws with the shelter program. Several dozen illegal immigrants are currently housed at St. John's Villa Academy. It's a Roman Catholic private school that has been closed since 2018. New York City officials say they are not vacating the site despite the judge's order. Instead, they will appeal. They say they are trying to manage a national humanitarian crisis. Meanwhile, Mayor Adams is seeking to exclude illegal immigrants from the city's right to shelter law. Let's get some analysis on this from a legal perspective. Bobby Ann Cox, a New York attorney and Epic Times contributor, joins us live. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. Can you explain what the city is trying to do here in terms of migrants being sheltered? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, there's this right to shelter consent decree that was signed back in the early 1980s. Um, and basically it says that the New York City has to house anyone that asks for housing. Um, now, it doesn't say that that means forever, number one. Um, and number two, it's not specific as to who exactly has that right. Um, so here we see New York City has declared itself a sanctuary city for years now um, and with a wide open southern border and an incentive of, hey, you get free housing, free food, free health care, free everything if you come to New York City. Dozens, dozens, I mean, tens of thousands of migrants are coming across the border straight to New York City because they're being offered free food, free housing and whatnot. So now the city has over 100,000, according to Mayor Adams, of these migrants in the city, and they have absolutely maxed out a capacity. So the mayor is going back to court. I mean, he's been in court many times over this, and he's fighting to try and get some sort of a curbing on that consent decree, because it's unclear who exactly that consent decree applies to. Now, should it apply to people that are coming illegally into our country? Of course not, but it's not actually been decided by a court yet. So they're back in court. Uh, there was a ruling yesterday, as you mentioned, and it's just completely, it's, it's a mess because now the, the mayor would like to limit how long that these people can stay in these shelters. So what's gonna happen if they say, he's trying to implement a 60 day rule. Now what happens if after 60 days they have to leave, where are they going to go? You know, but the bottom line here is that the government has caused this problem. The border is wide open. The government in New York State and New York City is saying, come here because we're gonna welcome you as a sanctuary city and we're going to give you free housing, free food, free healthcare. And now they're trying to give them the right to work. So. Now, and on that note, Bobby, that actually, Governor Kathy Hochul, she's bringing in more National Guard to help these migrants get work permits, whereas Mayor Adams has told illegal immigrants to look somewhere else. So are these at odds with each other or are they just happening in parallel? Um, well, you're right. So the governor is encouraging people to come. Um, she did appear in the news a couple days ago saying, you know, if you're going to leave your country, maybe you shouldn't come to New York because we are at capacity. So now she's starting to change her story. She's really been, you know, flip-flopping back and forth with this issue, um, but it has turned into a crisis, but it's a crisis that the government has created. And, you know, you really need to use logic when you're dealing with issues like this. 
if you're going to offer work permits to people, of course they're gonna to come to your city. And they don't even have enough housing right now. They've now been using over 150 hotels in New York City to house the illegal migrants. So you've got the shelters full to capacity, plus now they're using hotels across New York City in all the boroughs. And those hotels are being paid for by the taxpayers. So Mayor Adams has estimated over the next couple of years, if this continues, it's gonna cost New York City taxpayers $12 billion to house these illegal migrants. So you cannot sustain this. You know, the the issue is it's unsustainable. And, and that it's is a lot really of money, Bobby, $12 billion. I mean, the mayor's calling for 15% budget cuts agency-wide. So Bobby Ann Cox, New York attorney, thank you. Thank you. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. I mean, one thing, a takeaway from, from that, if I understand correctly, this just definitely wasn't a thought through, right? It, what, if I understand correctly, what she's saying is that the city can't afford it, they took them, um, they put them into shelters, and now they're about to drop them um, approaching winter. Yeah, and it's unclear whether or not they had anticipated this kind of migrant surge back in the 80s when they made that decree. And there's another twist in this story, too. Actually, the judge has recused herself, saying that she doesn't want to make her motive to favor one side affect the outcome. Mm. So we're going to bring you some more coverage. The second GOP debate is finally here. We talked to a debate expert on what candidates can do to improve their chances. And California's governor vetoes a bill that would require humans to be on board autonomous trucks, potentially costing the state thousands of jobs. Whoever said fairy tales can't come true? Well, ogre fans will have a chance to experience a very earthy place, a Shrek home, just in time for Halloween, so don't miss that coming up. Welcome back. GOP presidential hopefuls will go toe-to-toe -to -toe tonight in the second Republican presidential debate. Entity's Daniel Monahan has analysis from a debate expert on what to expect. University of Michigan Director of Debate Aaron Call says the national debates are very important for candidates representing their best opportunity to climb up in the polls. Doing well, according to the debate expert, is key to staying in the race, getting fundraising, and earning some free media coverage. They can't just attack each other uh, and hope to, to do well. They really have to take uh, the fight to uh, Donald Trump, who is the front runner. If they're ever going to make up any kind of ground, they need to more forcefully attack him, even if the moderators you know, don't uh, put the, the debate in that direction. They need to interject and do it themselves. Call says debates are all about expectations. And the first one, uh, Nikki Haley did well because not much was expected from her. And this time, because she's really progressed since then, I think there's going to be a lot more fire trained on her and, and people will expect more and see if she can follow up that first solid performance with another one. The debate expert adds that generally those doing the best in the polls are going to have the highest expectations. That starts out with Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy, probably the ones doing the best aside from Trump in the polls. So they'll get the they'll be in the center of the stage. They'll get the majority of the questions and attention from the moderators and the other candidates. And it'll be really interesting to see how they um, stack up against that kind of you know getting fired from all sides. Call found it intriguing that nobody attacked Governor DeSantis in the first debate. 
Governor DeSantis, which was very surprising given that he was number two at that time. And I think this time it's going to be a much more contentious debate. And Haley and DeSantis especially are going to get a lot more attacks from the other candidates. And it'll be interesting to see how they stand up to that pressure. As for Trump, Call says being in swing state Michigan is definitely better counter-programming than when he had to surrender in Atlanta after the Milwaukee debate the next day. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Senator Marco Rubio is calling for the White House to expel Chinese Communist Party-influenced operations. This comes on the tail of Ford halting construction of its electric vehicle plant in Michigan. CATL, the supplier of batteries that would go in Ford's EVs, received tens of billions in subsidies from the CCP. Rubio said Chinese EV battery companies shouldn't be allowed to operate in the U.S. or benefit from American subsidies. Goshen is another Chinese EV battery company with facilities going up in Michigan and Illinois. Michigan approved over $600 million in incentives for the Goshen and Ford CATL plants. Rubio said it's time for the White House to completely expel the influence operations from American soil. In what has been described as a shocking move, California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would require human drivers on board self-driving trucks. Union leaders as well as truck drivers have said the bill could have saved hundreds of thousands of jobs in the state. The Democratic governor says additional regulation of autonomous trucks was unnecessary because existing laws are sufficient. The legislation was vetoed on Friday. It would have banned self-driving trucks weighing more than 10,000 pounds from operating on public roads unless a human driver is on board. The head of California's Labor Federation decried Newsom's veto, saying that removing drivers would cost the state a quarter million jobs. Union leaders and drivers who support the bill said it would have addressed safety concerns and would have stopped truck driving jobs being lost to automation in the future. Collateral damage. An executive tells us the auto worker strikes are affecting small businesses and even catering companies. He breaks down the impact on various supply chains. Joining me now is Carlos Amaral, the executive vice president of Sarah's Technology. Thank you for coming on the show today, Carlos. Oh, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your invite. What segments of the supply chain are going to be impacted if the auto worker strikes continue? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, the the, the biggest issue, of course, is the automotive industries and their suppliers. But uh, they also, there are secondary effects like small business, uh, the service providers that uh, f- food catering, for example, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of catering that going on in the facilities, the food industries around uh, the, manu- uh, the manufacturing sites. They are going to be affected because if somebody is not working, they are not spending money. And that is a huge impact for, for the small business that provides service to those, those companies or those employees, if you want to think of that way. Right. Something you don't normally think about. Workers got to eat, but if they're out on the picket lines and they're not partaking in that. And you talk about the suppliers. U.S. Steel, to add to your point, is planning to idle its only blast furnace plant in Illinois due to a drop in demand. What's going to be the impact on these small and mid-sized suppliers? It'll be huge. I mean, you just think about it. If you're a mom and shop, a mom and pop shop, that you provide a specific service, a very unique service to a, um, a GM or Ford, I mean, you are no longer going to have a business, and that affects employees, 
right? So if I'm providing a service that no longer somebody's going to consume my service or my product, what do, what do I do with them? Well, you you cannot be paying for people to be staying idle, so you're going to have to put those guys on the street as well. So it's kind of a ripple effect. It's not only the the GM, the auto workers that are, is concerned, but also the people that provide service underneath of those. Right, these small and mid-sized businesses don't have the capacity to stay idle for that long. So how can supply chain managers mitigate this disruption? Well, using product like Service Nostradamus. I mean, Service Nostradamus is an artificial intelligence. I mean, I know it's a, sometimes it's a buzz word that everybody's afraid, but a, a product kind of look into a, through the world, looking to news and what's happening throughout the like microeconomic or microeconomic data and uh, come over 25,000 unique data sets like weather, strikes, labor strikes, for example. And then companies can look at it and find out if there is any upstream disruption that uh, can be alleviated. And the alleviation of the remedy of such a thing would be maybe I'm, I'm buying from a different supplier. If um, maybe I can, if I'm buying, let's say, from a Chinese having problem delivering product, maybe I buy from Mexico or Brazil or some other countries in, around the world that can provide the services. That is a fascinating application to artificial intelligence. What will the strikes mean for consumers buying cars or other products? Oh, <laughs> uh, I have a lot of anecdotal on that front. I mean, uh, it's, it's horrible. Right, I mean, I, I just recently bought my wife a brand new Bronco Sport, which was just manufactured. Uh, and uh, the, one of the the, the the shops that is gonna be hurt badly is exactly that one. The Bronco is gonna be stopping production. Very interesting analysis from you. Carlos Amaral, Executive Vice President of Cirrus Technology, thank you. No, thank you, I appreciate it. Have a great day. Another landmark monopoly case, the federal government and over a dozen states are suing Amazon. This groundbreaking lawsuit by the Federal Trade Commission and 17 attorneys general marks the federal government's sharpest attack yet on Amazon. We're bringing in Don Ma now, our business host. Hey, Don, really interesting developments here. And first Google, now Amazon. What are the allegations? Yeah, you know, the main thing here is uh, accusations that uh, Amazon has unfairly stifled competition. Uh, you know, for example, uh, FTC, California and District of Columbia uh, attorneys general have accused it of unfairly prohibiting merchants uh, from offering lower prices at rival platforms like uh, Walmart, uh, Target and Costco. Um, there's also allegations that Amazon unfairly promotes its own platform and services, you know, at the expense of other third-party sellers on Amazon, and that it ranks its own products uh, in search results higher uh, than those sold by third parties. Um, but, you know, other than that, the FTC is also accusing Amazon of, of harming competition by requiring sellers on its platform to use Amazon's own logistics services. Uh, you know, this is uh, in order to get the best benefits. The agency is saying that uh, because of Amazon's dominance uh, in e-commerce, sellers uh, you know, have little option but to accept Amazon's terms, and that's leading to higher prices for consumers and, and a worse consumer experience. Mm. And what has been Amazon's response in all this? 
Well, you know, of course, Amazon denies those allegations. It says that uh, the very things that the FTC is alleging are the exact same things that are helping to increase competition. So it's it's the complete opposite. It's saying that it's going to have uh, increased product variety, lower prices, and faster delivery speeds and more opportunity for businesses. Amazon claims that what, what the FTC is doing now would actually have the opposite effect, that it will lead to fewer products to choose from for consumers. Uh, it's going to lead to higher prices, slower deliveries uh, for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses. So the FTC and Amazon are completely at different sides here. Right. And what about, because when it comes to Google, some are expecting some serious effect, um, effects through that lawsuit. What are the stakes for Amazon in this case? Yeah, great question, Evelyn. So um, if Amazon loses, uh, at this point in time, it's it's not completely clear what the measures will be imposed on the company. Uh, the, the This monopoly case could potentially take years to resolve, so we'll have to keep a lookout on that. Uh, the, FC, the FTC says uh, consumers and sellers would benefit if the agency is victorious in this case, but you know, it's unknown uh, what measures uh, could actually ensure this outcome. But you know, at the extreme end, this could pave the way uh, to break up the company. I mean, I would say it's unlikely, but still the FTC is declining to say whether it's, it's seeking a breakup or not. So we'll have to wait and see. Mm, right, possibly something that drags on also. Well, good to keep an eye on that. Thank you so much, Don, host of Entity Business. Yeah, thank you as always, Evelyn. It's a great update from Don, and Amazon would have a lot of questions to answer to when oh, they talk sure. about bumping their own products up to the top. Yeah, some serious allegations there. Well, and we're heading to the end of the show now, so here are some fun stories you might want to hear. Yeah, St. Bernard dogs are one of the most beloved breeds in the world. They're famous for their rescue work in the Swiss Alps. However, the friendly giants no longer play that role. They are considered too big for helicopter transport in mountain rescue situations. And they are big. But they are lapping up their new role as therapeutic and educational support dogs for vulnerable people. Their friendliness and intelligence make them an excellent choice for improving the well-being of autistic people or those with other special needs. They also assist medical professionals in carrying out social rehabilitation of patients. Wow, I have to say, I feel emotionally supported just watching this. Yeah. This is adorable. Look at his face. Yeah, they don't look big now, but they get big. <laughs> right. Uh, some kisses. Maybe one day we can have an office dog. Oh, yeah. Something to show off. Just a hint to the producer listening in right now. But whoever said fairy tales can't come true. Airbnb is trying to make one fantasy story very real for people just in time for Halloween. It's recreated Shrek's Swamp based on the 2001 animated movie. Ogre fans will find the place very earthy. Shrek's Swamp is located in the Scottish Highlands and features a mud-laden, moss-covered, murky watered abode. Guests can light earwax candles, sit around a fire, and enjoy donkeys' freshly made waffles for breakfast. Interested guests can request a two-night stay starting October 13th. Up to three people will then get to visit the unique home October 27th through October 29th. Guests, though, will be responsible for their own travel to and from Scotland. 
wonder if they have a donkey around there. <laughs> and who wouldn't want to experience that? Yeah, I mean, Shrek fans, for sure. I definitely watched the movies. And it I'm is a charming movie. Exactly. All right. And that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you as usual. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's it for today. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.